Watching Logan Allen dominate, I realized I haven't seen a young person impose their will on others this well since Zach was forced to bring home a $95 stuffed animal last week for his son. You're listening to the Selfie is Godcast with Zach Meisel and TJ Zupi. Subscribe to Selby is Godcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Unbelievable. Zach, tell me if I'm off base, but I feel like this team has a knack for working you into a shoot, almost being to the point of you ready to just blast them. And then they always leave you especially right before we record this show, on enough of a positive note that it takes the edge off and we don't have to completely blast them. Why does it feel like for the last two years that has been their MO? Yeah. Was it last year that they did that too? I was trying. I was feeling deja vu yesterday because I feel like every Sunday is it's bloody Sunday, <laughs> at least on my laptop, because I have these plans to write something much more critical, I think, than I end up writing because they salvage something. The last game of a series. And that I couldn't remember if it was last year or the year before, but I remember feeling the same vibe that they were going to plant that seed of doubt in your head for as long as they could until at the last second they just get something out of it. <laughs> It's just gaslighting me just to just to, just a little bit. What are you talking about? Why are you upset? This team is, is going to be fine. And they show you enough of something that the scathing article or the scathing tearing apart that we could do on this show gets tempered just a little bit. Now that that's a lot better. I, I would rather have that be the case than have to come on there and, and just rip them mercilessly. And that doesn't mean that anything that we would have ripped them for just disappears based on a, a victory on a Sunday. I don't know. Something about watching Logan Allen come up and I use the word dominate. I won't know if I would use the word dominate to describe his performance, but he was really good. We're going to get more of that in the coming days or the coming starts from that, that guy. Going to be more than pleased. And I think it also gets you excited because you realize this is just the first of the wave of these really talented starters that we've been talking about for a while. Unfortunately, I don't know when Espino is going to join that group, and we can talk about that briefly coming up. But to watch that start, it does get you excited because this rotation is the one thing that we keep coming back to, being this big alarming, where are they going to find the answers for who's going to be star-level potential starters for this team? Well, Logan Allen maybe took a step toward that in his first game. Yeah, I mean, let, let's... I'll try to set the scene for you. It's it's Sunday morning. It's maybe three hours before first pitch. Logan Allen is sitting at his locker, scrolling on his phone. And it's pretty quiet, but there's a little bit more... There is a little bit more energy in the clubhouse than I think we had seen in a few days. And you've got some some players sitting together playing cards, always the case. A lot of guys are wearing white t-shirts and on the front it says chill will the picture of will brennan and as each player filters into the clubhouse in the morning josh naylor is sending everyone to miles straw's locker where a big box of these t-shirts are waiting and then will comes in and everyone goes nuts i think cal quantro at one point asked him how much would you want for me to tattoo a picture of you on my body i don't just there was there was more energy and I think I think um you know after a loss that place is that we've always said it's like a library it's a mausoleum it's just depressing and quiet and no one really talks and everyone goes home and after a win it's the exact opposite you've got music blasting so it's interesting you know before games it can be whatever you want it to be I think sometimes you just got to mix up the vibe and Cal Quantrill walked over to the music setup and 
turned on music before a game that I had never, you know, it's usually rap. Sometimes it's, uh, I feel like there's like reggae once in a while. He went pop punk. And I feel like I just made a mental note. Like if this sparks a winning streak, it's all coming back to this right here. So I wanted to give you a little sample. Yes, I need to taste. Because this is kind of your, this is more your cup of tea than mine. Well, I'm also interested to hear if you say pop and punk and you use those words together, it sparks a debate about what's punk, what's pop punk. Mm. Where do, where does Blink-182 fall under this spectrum? Where's Sum 41? Where's Good Charlotte? And then more of the the emo mm. pop punk bands. Where's Taking Back Sunday? Where do these bands all fit together? That's I'm interested from your perspective. So he started with Welcome to the Black Parade by My Chemical okay. Romance. And during that song, Jose Ramirez walks up to, I don't know if it was Quantrill's phone or what, walks up to it, looks at it, gives a face like, what the hell is this? And then just sets it back down and goes and sits at his locker. Then we got In Too Deep by Sum 41. Okay. Nice. We got Dance Dance by Fall Out Boy. We got a random... Uh, you probably know that. This is. I mean, this might have been your band. I don't know. Leap of me Faith tear up. by Savage Existence. A lot of screaming. I'm, I'm down with that. That's and a then there good was some, Sunday morning wake-up call if I've ever heard it. <laughs> yeah. And then there was some Paramore. But the best part, oh, so good. The best part is that, I mean, like maximum volume. You couldn't. I think I'm Mandy sorry. Bell how was else saying do you something. Listen? How do you listen to it? If it's too <laughs> Mandy loud, Bell was standing you're too right old. next to me, and she said she was saying something to me, and she's like, "You have to look at me when I'm talking to you because you you're gonna have to read my lips to hear me." She's standing five feet from me. Um. So so think about like how, how do I loud? turn on the subtitles. think about how loud that is and it's that style of music now picture logan allen sitting in his locker which is like the closest locker to where the music is emanating from and he and mike zanino are sitting together going over the scouting report and you're just like how are they hearing each other and is he going to get shelled and the reason is because he and zanino were on the wrong page because they couldn't really hear what each other was saying. No, but he knows the beginning of the Black Parade. <laughs> <laughs> when um, I was a young starter, I was facing the Miami Marlins. Yeah, that's how else do you listen to that music? I'm sorry. If it is that loud for you, then you need to exit the clubhouse. You have now gotten to too old territory, which is. Totally accurate, by the way. Now, I am getting to the point where I'm so old. Where I'm like, hey, maybe we do turn this music down a little bit. Or if I'm at the show, maybe I'm going to go stand in the back as opposed to getting my head blasted in the pit. I, I love that about this team, that they could be able to change the vibes up a little bit. Yeah, I mean, look, Alan Pitchwell. And I think it was a breath of fresh air. And I think more than anything, it was... I don't want to be unfair to Hunter Gaddis or to Peyton Battenfield. It is the first taste of what this next group of pitching could be. And sort of weirdly enough, the the organization has been pretty candid about the excitement over Allen and Williams and Bybee. And, I mean, Tito said it's this next wave. James Harris said on Sunday that Williams and Bybee he said Bobby Williams and, and Allen, it could have been any of the three. And that I that sort of caught me by surprise. I mean, Bobby sure. But Williams is in double A, even though he's making those kids kids look like they've never played baseball before. But just the to be up front and say that these guys aren't far away, um I mean that means something. And I think it's it's different when you see Battenfield have a good start and you're like, okay, like that's that's nice. That'll help them bide their time till McKenzie comes back. 
But he also wasn't even on the 40-man roster a couple weeks ago. So you know, you know, I don't know how much they really believe in him. Whereas these other guys are top 100 prospects. And that doesn't guarantee anything. But I think you're banking on them to be part of this rotation and, and really make a difference sooner rather than later. I think that that's the key point, the sooner rather than later. For a while, it has felt like a dream that who knows when it was going to arrive, but a rotation that featured Bybee and Williams and Allen and Espino and McKenzie and Bieber has long been traded in this scenario, but that was exciting. Now when you see Allen appear like a wild Pokemon and destroy the other team's Pokemon, it's exciting. Uh, kind of like, uh, I don't know, a, a Wigglytuff. I don't, I, I don't know. I just, that's the first Pokemon that came to my mind, but to see Alan come up and not only pitch very well, but I, I felt like he pitched in a way that was not, he didn't have to use t- tons of smoke and mirrors to get that done. He, I, I was encouraged because he came up and he threw the fast. He wasn't shying away from throwing the fastball. It wasn't like he had to come up and throw 37 of the sweeper pitch to keep people off balance. No, it was a, it was a balanced mix that I thought that there were adjustments that he could make off of it as he needs to. But the 17 swings and misses was very encouraging. So he was able to miss bats. That's something we've talked about. You tweeted out the statistic that he was the first pitcher to strike out eight this season. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, Logan Allen. And I, I took it as, I mean, yes, yay, Logan Allen. But what's up with everybody else? Where's everybody else at? He probably should not be leading the charge here with eight. But that doesn't take away from the performance that he had yesterday. Uh, you know, the, the fastball was playing well, and it doesn't sit like 96, 97 miles per hour. In fact, throughout the day, the max was 94. He lives between 94 and 90. 92 is the average. You can do the math there. Only through nine of the sweepers still relied heavily on the fastball. Again, it seems like a mix that as he starts to see teams more often and and guys get more of a look at him in the major leagues, he can adjust that arsenal as he needs to based on the opponent. There are more opponents, or there are some opponents where you need to throw more of the fastball. There are going to be more opponents where you need to rely more on the breaking stuff. It just looked like a guy that could succeed in a, in a few different ways. I was very encouraged by that few, that first outing. As we say all the time, that is not an indication whether it would have went positive or negative of what even the rest of this season is going to look like. But damn, was that encouraging. It was also about 45 degrees and windy. <laughs> so I'm not too worried about the velo. Because they, he made a big point of it, and the team did too, that they felt part of the reason he struggled at AAA last season was he didn't have the fastball that he could throw with conviction in the zone to get people out. So he had to rely on the other stuff more. So he added Velo over the offseason, and you saw he attacked. A lot of first pitch strikes, a lot of fastballs. And and the thing with him, too, is the command is so good that if the fastball is 93 instead of 90, it's like with Tristan. If he can place it exactly where he wants to on the edge and put it in a spot where you, even if you make contact, it's probably not going to be great contact, that's effective. And that's the thing with... This rotation is not, nobody throws hard. I was talking to someone in the organization over the weekend who was like, yeah, it'll be nice when Bobby and Williams are up because you finally see some 96, 98. They don't have that. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's very weird. And I was looking and, you know, it was only five years ago where this rotation was four starters with 200 or more strikeouts, which you never see. And you know who the fifth was? It was Bieber. He came up that May on your birthday. And he ended up the season with more than a... He had more than a strikeout per inning himself. And times have changed. And certain things don't exist that maybe existed back then. But it's very different. I wrote, this is not your slightly older siblings Cleveland rotation. This is, this is different. It's a group in transition, and we start. We saw the start of that transition. I think on Sunday. 
Well, the fastball still played, which I think is what is important. He still got nine swings and misses on the fastball, period. And most swings and misses as far as percentage came from the splitter. 42% was the whiff rate on that. But he still got nine swings and misses. And I think that's important. He, As you said, he had to learn that it plays within the zone. You've got to be able to throw it for strikes. You Hitters have to be able to respect it. And it doesn't have to be a 97-mile-per-hour gas to get swings and misses on it. Sometimes it's the other arsenal, too. Guys aren't expecting you to throw that on a strike-three pitch, and you can surprise them. I think he even did that a couple of times in the outing, even catching them looking or swings and misses. That was important. I wanted to see that the fastball played, and it did in in the first start. Adjustments are going to be made. The the way that he succeeded on Sunday is not going to be the way that he's going to succeed every single time out. But just seeing, I don't want to say the fastball is the least of his pitches, but it is, on average, the most hittable pitch of anybody. It's what hitters are looking for. And so when you have some success with that, that feels repeatable. And I don't know if there's anything to it, but it's kind of nice to throw in a, a lefty to this rotation just to, I don't know, disrupt the other team, make them have to change their lineup every once in a while. I'm not sure it has any tangible difference, but I don't know. Something about having a lefty in the rotation kind of seems nice. We, I was trying to think the other day of when the last time they had, one, an effective lefty starter, and then two... This wasn't really him, but I was just thinking, when I was watching, they had highlights of Jesus Lazardo playing in the clubhouse. And I was thinking, when's the last time they had a hard-throwing left-handed starter at CC, right? Yeah. I mean, Scott Lewis was throwing like 87, so it wasn't him. <laughs> Not Bruce Chen. The only zingers he were was throwing were the ones before game when he would just approach the reporters <laughs> with a... a, a really awful joke that I still remember. I still remember his, oh, did you hear about the fire at the circus? Yeah, it was intense. Hilarious. Dude knocked him dead, but unfortunately, the other team would then knock him dead during the game when he was pitching with Cleveland. Wait. Scott Casimir had a, didn't Scott Casimir have like a stretch where he was throwing a little bit harder? Maybe early in that year. Did you hear, I have to go did back. you hear about the actress who died? It was Reese, Reese, not with a knife, with her spoon. With her spoon. Mm. Yeah, that was a Bruce Chen no, classic. No, I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged by Logan Allen. And it does take some of the edge off of what could have been a totally disastrous weekend. And I still don't think it removes it completely, but it is feeling better to leave on a positive note and on at a 500 level. And sometimes we look at these things in a vacuum, we neglect to look at what everybody else is doing because ultimately it doesn't matter. You need to handle what you're doing. But still within the division, it's not like the Twins are off to this fantastic start. The White Sox look dreadful at times. The Kansas City Royals look fun, I guess. it. <laughs> I, I don't know. This, this division, clearly nobody has established themselves to begin the season. So they're not digging themselves a hole that they can't emerge from. And this is not unlike anything that we've never seen before with this team. They get off to these starts or they're just... Hanging around and kind of meh. And if some of the worst baseball you played results in you hanging around the 500 mark, we'll look past this stretch and say, okay, good, you survived. The more important thing is, do you see encouraging signs that things are going to change? I don't know. Do you see that right now? The the question I keep asking and what I was planning to write before Logan Allen sort of became the story on Sunday is two parts. One... Just because they get up to a slow start every April doesn't mean that that's okay. It doesn't guarantee that they're going to turn things around and get hot. But the way they do things is they have a starting point and they have an ending point that they want to get to and they feel like they have a path to get there. And that's why the roster in April never looks like the roster in September. And that's why Terry Francona can say and admit publicly that this three-catcher experiment's not going to be forever. Man, how does it keep surviving, though? Maybe Bruce Valoria has caught like 17 innings in 22 games. He's played in eight of them. Four but he's there. Three wild pitches. It's like a, a, a warm security blanket just sitting there on the bench for Tito. But that's a tangent. Anyway, the main part is, is what is plaguing you 
fixable? That's it. That's the question. Are all these things that are going wrong correctable? And we said with Josh Bell, it was a simple fix. Hit the ball in the air. Hit the ball in the air. Stop hitting grounders to first base. Now, to do that, you got to get your mechanics right. And he's fixed some things. And he said it. He admitted all this, and it's came to fruition. He's got an 11.29 OPS over the last 11 games. That's half the season. First half of the season, it was a 3.29 OPS. So, you know, for one half, he's been awful. And for one half, he's been fantastic. He's a streaky Never hitter. Seen That's that what's going to happen. From Josh Bell. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so that was something that, you know, we said that, that, that seems fixable and it has been, I think Jose Ramirez fixable and he had another home run yesterday and you're seeing signs. He's just going to have to figure out how pitchers are attacking him and what he wants to do with it. I think, um, you know, no, there's no point in throwing him a fastball ever. And there's not a lot of benefit to throwing him anything in the zone. And maybe, maybe Josh Bell hitting better behind him. Helps him see some pitches. I don't know. I think, or maybe honestly, the the better thing would be Quan and Rosario getting on base more ahead of him will give him opportunities. But again, not something to be worried about. We could talk about Classe's velocity and and what you feel there. Is that correctable, or is it maybe just it'll end up being okay even if it is what it is? Like, I think you just have to take each early season pitfall and determine. What could be a long-term problem that could end up being this team's downfall? And what is just, what are we going to totally have forgotten about by June 1st? And you go through that. And I think the reason we keep talking about the rotation is that was the one part where it's might be fixable, but it's a little more difficult to find the solution. Whereas I could say, stop playing Naylor against lefties or, Class A, let it get warmer and figure out how to use the pitch clock to your advantage. Or Karen check, find some way to get rosin on your glove or something. Or, you know, like everything has like a little tweak that can make this disappear. The rotation, I'm not so sure. I think Logan Allen's debut and arrival and the fact that Bybee probably isn't too far behind, I think maybe helps us answer that well i want to get back to some of those thoughts in, in a little bit but i i will tell you just watching the way friday and saturday played out and as frustrating and as maddening as it made me i i i had to to vent those frustrations somewhere a lot of people go to our discord then the discord has been on fire the last several days but there are times where I don't necessarily want to share those internal thoughts. I want to let it play out a little bit more and stew on them before I just throw them out to everybody to consume and have out there forever. Hashtag never tweet. And so I get out my, my little notebook here and I start jotting down some ideas, some not so nice words about different players. But you know what? I'm not then going to take a screenshot of that and put it on Instagram like a certain Cleveland Guardians outfielder might with their journal. And speaking of the Discord being on fire and conspiracies and anything else that you might want to consider, how about the level of forensics that people were doing on Stephen Kwan's journal after it was apparently on his Instagram story? Laying out details of his negotiations, looking for a long-term deal with Cleveland and picking it apart and finding words like something to the effect of getting something similar to what Miles Straw got, but I'm better than Straw in every facet. Uh, what, what did you take away from the, the whole Quan journal gate? That's a tough one. Surprised that he made that mistake. And him deleting it, I think, means he had no intention of that getting out there. If you're going to post a video on Instagram, you better watch that thing start to finish. That's your journal. I would think that you would be very careful about making sure what exactly people might be able to see. Did you have a journal? Um, A little diary? Did you have like the little lock on it that you had to... Stick the key in there. Really dating ourselves. No, no one knows what the hell writing. we're talking about. I want to see who's I, I mean, on one hand, it 
kind of gives some clarity to some things I had reported in the spring. It's it's rare to be able to put actual numbers on a an offer or a contract that doesn't pan out. You know, people, I feel like I have said this repeatedly over the last couple months. People always ask, are they close or, or like rank who you think is the most likely to sign a contract extension? And I always say it's impossible to know because I'm never going to know exactly what a player's appetite for an extension is because they're not going to, why would they tell me? Then they, that they lose some of their leverage in their actual negotiation. So it makes it difficult and you hear things. And I, I mean, I remember like I talked to Quan and his camp and the team and like all the parties involved. And my sense was Quan's negotiations didn't really get very far, but I knew they talked and like there had been, you know, I never know if it's like an official offer or if it's just like talking in general terms. I knew McKenzie, they had gotten kind of far along. I mean, again, it's it's difficult to to handicap this. Um, but to be able to see the exact numbers, I think, allows us to put some things in context. And it's difficult because, again, I don't know. I mean, we can look at what Quan wrote and make some conclusions. I don't know how much the team would have budged off that initial offer. Didn't seem like Quan had much interest in negotiating after receiving that initial offer. So it's it's tough. And and I don't know what Quan would have, exactly what he would have wanted. And for all that to get out there, I just, it doesn't really make anybody look good. Um, you know, he was, he has always been, I don't think he's ever said no to an interview request. And I know he was getting pulled in a lot of different directions last season, certainly early, and then I think late too. And he's so thoughtful and so down to earth. And, you know, if he's the type of guy, if you've just got a story on anything or you have a question you're pondering and you're thinking, who might be able to answer this? Like his name pops up either first or second in that clubhouse. And, so, I do wonder if he was dodging us over the weekend. There were a couple times he was in the clubhouse, and he left pretty quickly. Um, we were waiting for him Saturday night, because in addition to that, he had the weird play at the end of that game, and he kind of disappeared, and we didn't see him come back for a long time, and no one could find him. But I know he disappeared and he wasn't wearing a shirt, so I. it was a little cold if you were going to walk home in the, that outfit. Um, and I, I don't know, maybe he wasn't dodging us and it was just, that happens. It's just random. Sometimes you go a few days and you just don't cross paths with people. But um, I could understand if he was. And it didn't seem just from the outside like there was any rift in the clubhouse or anything. But again, he mm. was barely in there when we were in there, so who knows. But yeah, I well, mean, think I, of I it, just the, nothing the good players comes that out he, of that. The players that he directly mentioned are guys that he has close relationships with, right? I'm sure him and Miles. In fact, this might have even come from Miles Straw's mouth. Like, dude, you're better than me. Well, why wouldn't mm -hmm. they offer you? Like, if you and I were having a, a a conversation about you know what we're getting paid from this show, you know, the millions of dollars that we make. <laughs> and you're like hey, hey, millions I, of dollars and I get what I get. What are you doing here? I mean, uh, 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 uh where can we get uh, this brought to you by SeatGeek? No. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we talk about this. It's, it's not something that exists just between yourself and the agent. These are conversation guys are having in the clubhouse constantly. They're not sitting down going, well, it's three o'clock in the afternoon. We don't play till seven. Let's talk about game plan and what this pitcher's gonna throw. No, they're they're just friends and dudes like anybody else would be sitting around. So these conversations are had. I don't think anybody's blindsided by anything that was written in a journal. I was a little surprised that it came from Quan. He just seems so smart and and maybe more calculated to put mm -hmm. something out there like this. There's clearly no malicious intent or anything like that. I think it came more from an innocence than anything else. Like eh, just. This is out there and not realizing, oh, this could become a bigger deal. I always 
get concerned more than like what the team thinks. Who cares what the team thinks of it? You go out and play, they're, they'll get over it. You, you're, you're playing well, they'll live with it. They're fine. How does it impact your relationships with teammates and friends? That's always more what I'm, what I'm more centered on or, or concerned with. I don't think it's anything that would rub anybody the wrong way. And then also as I kind of thought about it some more, these are big boys, the professionals. What he's saying is true. <laughs> he, is, he is better than Miles Straw. At least this past year he certainly was and certainly shows the potential to be better than, than Miles Straw was. Like, we got to walk on eggshells this much that he couldn't say something like that? Like, I, I think I deserve more than what Miles Straw got. I don't like we're, we're talking about like we're, we're talking about kindergartners here and not hurting anybody's feelings. They're professionals. What, what he's saying is, is factual here, but I think you do have to be mindful of how anybody's going to take something like that. And I just think in this situation, knowing the little bit that I know, certainly you know a little bit more than me and the teammates know more than anybody else, they know where that, those thoughts are going to come from. And it's clearly not a, from a, a again, as I said, a malicious intent here on his part. No, but I do wonder where it goes. Now I wonder what those discussions are like next spring. Provides, assuming he has a good season, which kind of off to a little bit of a slow start, but it'll be interesting. And it's just, it's just yeah, I'm sure the the organization isn't thrilled that that's out there. <laughs> no, probably not. But that's more I mean, so. How many times have you seen going that to... sort of contract structure? Yeah. I feel like you could just draw up what Cleveland's going to come at you with because it's been spit out by their calculator. But they're, they're not going to like it because then any other player is going to be able to compare themselves off of the offer that Quan got. So it goes beyond. It, it kind of hurts their leverage, so to speak, I guess. But you and I talking about this is probably more energy than the team or the, his teammates or anybody has put into it. It's, it's long in the past. As someone in our Discord said, I, I believe, that this, there's nothing to get past. It's probably already gone. It's in, you played Sunday. As long as Quan is going out there and just performing and the team is playing decently well, stuff like this just doesn't matter. I, it's important for us to talk about it because it's fun. It's like, oh, sp spilled tea, we're going to get all over this. But ultimately, does it matter? Probably not. I would agree with that. Something that does matter is Josh Naylor swinging the bat. A little bit better. I found the quote that you put out from from Tito. You asked the question: Was it before Friday's game or Saturday? One of the two. One of the games this weekend. Saturday. Why don't you set it up? Because you asked the question. Why would I say put the words into your mouth? Yeah, I mean, I was, I was, I was thinking for a few days. Just how how do you approach? Um, Linus has got some ideas. Yeah, he's not very thrilled with Josh Naylor. Uh, but, you know, it, it wasn't, it's not even just lefties. I mean, he was in, I, I didn't realize it was this bad. He was one for 36. And so it was, had reached the point where we can have the debate over whether he should be facing lefties all we want. But he also wasn't hitting righties. And mm. in my head, I'm thinking, I mean, we, we, I think he can hit righties. I'm not concerned about that. The trade-off here is now you're also going to hear my kid. Um, so. Oh, it's adorable. I think he's going to hit righties. The, the issue is, do you let him keep facing lefties when he's in this huge overall extended slump anyway? Like, what, if you think he can still hit lefties, and clearly Terry Francona does because he's in the lineup. Is it, is the move to let him face everybody even when he's going poorly? Or do you want him to get back on track against righties and then try to tackle lefties? Does that make sense? Well, as we spoke about before, my biggest concern was that he was healthy and that there wasn't something here nagging that was forcing him to get into some bad habits. And then we get into bad habits and then more bad habits form and it snowballs and then it's out of control and before you know it, it's a lost season. That, that's what I'm I'm most concerned with because I think a right Josh Naylor, a healthy Josh Naylor, is good enough to be in the lineup and close to being 
an everyday player. I want to give him the opportunities to face lefties. I also want to make sure he's set up to be the most he can be. If they're saying that there's no issue there with the hand or anything that we were theorizing about on a previous episode, great. And Tito even spoke to that some of the process and underlying numbers have still been okay with Naylor, but it gets it gets frustrating when you keep coming back to the dugout and they say, hey, good job, you hit that ball over 100. Well, Skip, I hit into a double play. That doesn't feel good. It's the, the right turn mentality versus the left turn mentality. Sometimes it's a 67 mile per hour off the bat blooper to left field that gets somebody feeling better because they're on first base finally. And for him, that is clearly, even when he doesn't demonstrate it, it bubbles to the surface. We know he's an emotionable, emotionable, emotion-filled player. And he uses that to fuel him when it's going well. And I worry that sometimes it drags him down when things aren't going well. I was just most encouraged by the way that, that, that Terry Francona approached that because he realizes even as they're trying to work him through it, you still have a, a responsibility to put the best team, the best lineup, the best everything forward. And for that team right there, where they're at this weekend, it meant dropping Naylor down in the lineup a little bit. And it demonstrates just what we've talked about for years now about Terry Francona, what makes him such a good manager. And when I see other teams come to town and I go into other managerial scrums and I listen to the way that they approach it, they just don't have the experience to draw upon like Terry Francona does. And there are certain things that opposing managers will say in a scrum and I go, I don't know if I would have put it that way or I certainly wouldn't see Terry Francona approaching it this way. And I wonder how the players would react upon hearing what this manager just said. And here's Tito talking about, yeah, we need to try to put the best lineup on the field. Our best lineup still is going to have Naylor in it, so we can't run from him. We need to get him right. But I want to sit down with him and have this conversation explain why he's hitting seventh or eighth today in this lineup. I don't want it to be a, a giant shock or surprise. Yeah, I mean, it's it was the basis of the long feature I wrote a few weeks ago where what makes him good at his job and again we can nitpick the hell out of whether Tyler Freeman should be bunting or whether Andre Jimenez should be hitting second or and like that stuff matters it does but in the grand scheme what makes him such a successful manager is he knows the right thing to say to the right person at the right time you're right that's why I asked the question the day I did because I saw Naylor hitting eighth, starting against a lefty, and I thought, he at least sees some of what I see. And at what I'm thinking about has certainly crossed his mind. And so he said, he puts the lineup out, calls Naylor into his office to talk face-to-face, so it's coming from him, and they can hash it out. And I, I still come back to the main point here is it's not Ryan Rayburn, it's not Jordan Luplo, it's not Brandon Geyer that you're pairing with him, it's Gabriel Arias. We don't know if he can hit anyone. Maybe, but we don't know. So if a Rayburn was on this roster, I think it would be a lot easier to just run away from Naylor against lefties. But it's, there isn't that doesn't exist. So they would rather get a definitive answer on what Naylor's capable of than, you know, testing out Arias regularly and not using Naylor against lefties. Which you can decide if that's the way you would go or not, but I understand the thought behind it. And more than anything, they need to just get him going, period. This team hits yeah. for no power. They have nothing in the middle of the order lately. You know, we're still sort of caught in between on this Brennan-Gonzalez thing in right field. They've faced so many lefties lately. And, you know, you it, the lineup, even just against righties, it's so different. If Now that you got Bell going a little bit, you know, if Ramirez is Ramirez, and then you stick Naylor in their fifth with Jimenez, like, yeah, I keep saying I think the lineup's going to be fine, and it's going to be a strength eventually. That's what I'm looking at when I'm saying that. But you need to get him going. And if you get him going against righties, maybe he's got more confidence against lefties. And hey, 
Jesus Lazardo was, I think, the best lefty they faced all week. And he had two hits. So it's baseball is stupid. We know nothing. And he needs the reps. The, the worst thing I think you can do when you feel like the process is good, but the results just aren't there, is let that guy go stew on it on the bench. You need to keep his bat in the lineup. And to the point that the process has still been good under the surface, and the things, it kind of what, what, what Terry Francona was harping on here with Naylor, and I'm sure the hitting staff has sat down with Naylor and showed him these things. As far as his expected weighted on base average, which factors in the walks and the strikeouts, of course, but also the quality of contact based on Savant baseball uh, stat cast data. Over at Savant, he's got a 355 X Woba, which would be, as I'm quickly looking at this, the best of his career. Uh, yeah, that's better than last year. Was at 327, so well above average. Now that's not like greatest of all time. Oh my god, but it's it's good. That's a very solid, very respectable ex woba. And so I was thinking, okay, based on the quality of contact and the strikeouts and the walks, where does the gap between that and what his current woba is 242 rank in baseball? Third biggest difference in the negative, so third most unlucky hitter as far as the difference between the quality of contact and the strikeouts and the walks, what that suggests, and the actual results that he's gotten. And the guys that are above him, by the way, Nick Gordon and Marcelo Zuna, have both been pretty terrible. Those are the things you need to be focused on with Naylor. Under the surface, you're still getting some very good positives. You just got to hope that the fact that he's not getting the results doesn't just beat him into submission here. Yeah, so that's one of those... Those early season issues that think a, I think he'll be fine against righties. So that part's fixable. It's the lefty part and the lack of a backup plan that I would say is on the list of concerns that could be a long-term yeah. one. If Jim Tomey can be t- taken out of the lineup or hit seventh and eighth against lefties early in his career, my God, Josh Naylor can too. I know they, this team doesn't have a Herbert Perry to plug in there as opposed to Tommy <laughs> facing a southpaw. Yeah, I mean, him hitting would be a- on Saturday, surprising, and what they needed to do. Will we be able to say a great year at the end of it when we're looking at Emmanuel Classe's season if the velocity remains down? How long does it remain down, and does it matter? Now, here's, here's something interesting. The last five outings, five scoreless appearances, given up a couple of hits in, in a couple of games, but for the most part, especially the last two, wasn't this vintage Class A getting it done on 10 pitches or fewer? I mean, that's, that's the Class A special. Did you notice in the five appearances where he hasn't allowed a run, only one strikeout? Only one in those five appearances. That seems weird to me. Now, I know he's not a huge strikeout guy, but he's still capable of getting at least a strikeout per inning, and that's not been the way that he's been been getting outs here recently. The, the thing that I continue to watch is the fastball still is sitting like 97, 98. I, I, I still think he can't, as long as he's commanding 97, 98 with the movement that he has, he's still more than capable of being a great pitcher. What I'm concerned with, or, or maybe concern is too strong, what I will continue to watch is the separation in, in miles per hour between the cutter and the slider. Throughout his career, it's sat between like eight or nine mile per hour differentiation between the two. And I think there needs to be that level of differentiation to be able to have the slider and cutter kind of working in tandem the way that they should. In this most recent outing, now he's only out there, what, six pitch, seven pitches? What was it? It was something ridiculous. It's only a six mile per hour difference between the two. I, I want to make sure he continues to maintain like seven and a half to eight miles per hour so that those two pitches play off of each other correctly. So I'll continue to watch that. And, and why the slider would be up, but the cutter wouldn't be up, it's, that's weird to me. But it remains a conundrum below the surface. On, above the surface, the numbers still look fine. Yeah. I, the pitch clock is having an effect here. He's just got to work quicker. We've talked about the dramatic difference in his tempo last year to this year. You're right. It's jarring to look at his baseball savant page and see he ranks in the 19th percentile in strikeout rate. I mean, that's something I would expect from like, I don't know, Peyton Battenfield, maybe? Or, uh, uh, yeah, I, that, it's it's weird. And even, the, I mean, the whiff rate 
28th percentile. Last year, that was 80th. And his strikeout rate was 83rd. The year before, it was 89th and 69th. Um, so what's interesting to me is I'm thinking, all right, this guy's bread and butter is still getting that awkward contact that leads to the weird chopper to second base. And the way he gets in trouble is when he gives up an infield hit and there's an error and maybe there's a walk, something like that, right? Or a bloop on a broken bat. Like that's the stuff that's gotten him in trouble in the past and you just, you have to live with that. But so the last two seasons, he's ranked in the top 9% of the league in exit velocity. And his average exit velocity so far this season is pretty much right in line with where it's been the last two years. So I think that's a good sign. What's been weird is it's been all over the map. (laughs) Like there was, he had an outing in Oakland when he blew the save where the average exit velocity against his cutter and he threw 14 of them was 99.2 miles an hour. That you can't have that because if, if that, if he's getting crushed like that, then just turned all sliders. I mean, his slider was devastating last season. But the last two outings, it's, you know, even though he's throwing 97-98, exit velocity's been in the 70s. Um, Two outings before that, it was 65.8. So, like, I think he's, I think he's fine. I think he's going to be okay. Um, But you're right. I do wonder what the eventual pitch distribution will be. And like, does he almost, does he become slider first maybe over time? And where is the cutter most effective? The big thing that they stressed with him this year was they challenged him. They said, can you throw your cutter at the top of the zone more? Um, Because they thought that would get more swing and miss. And bottom of the zone is great. Guys are going to, that's where they're going to really struggle to make hard contact and they're going to beat it into the ground. And then you throw your slider and you tunnel it so the slider is dropping off the plate below it and that's very effective. But they said, can you throw the cutter at the top of the zone and maybe get some more swing and miss because guys can't get around to a 100 mile an hour cutter at their chest. But if it's 97 and it's up there, uh, I don't know. I just, I don't know what this looks like at the end. And I think he's sort of trying to figure that out too. And it's, I guess it's less of a concern, just more of an interest to me. Yeah. Cause he's still, he should still be effective, right? Yeah. I mean, how do you complain about a guy that has a, he's got a 225 ERA right now. Like (laughs) who's freaking out about their closer with their 225 ERA to begin the season? Us. (laughs) I think that just goes to show you how friggin' spectacular this guy has been. The last two seasons have been two of the best relief seasons in Cleveland franchise history. Where do you go from there? Well, it's tough to, I guess, maintain. But when you see him emerge as being a top three closer in the sport, if not the best, and then you see him come out just kind of solid, it's a difference. It's it's different to me, and so I can look at the expected ERA, three fifty two, and I'm not like panicked about that. But that's not one ninety seven like he had last year, or two seventeen like he had in twenty twenty one. And I think it is important that he's closer to relief God than he is solid reliever for this team to get where they are. So that's why I will continue to watch it. And it's interesting because sort of like Bieber last year. I want to see what it looks like. I want to see how this evolves. I want to see if the velocity improves as the weather heats up and he's more into a groove and the arm feels better. I want to see pitch distribution and I want to see the level of difference between the velocity and the the cutter and the slider maintain where it has been in the past. I think that's important to the slider to perform as well as you want it to. So I just, I'll continue to monitor it, but he deserves the credit. The last two outings have been good as far as just quickly in and out of out of the bullpen and into the dugout that's your prototypical emmanuel classe outing more of that yeah i think more of that. there are more questions about who's pitching in front of him well i tell you even if it's 95 you can't leave it 
right there, thigh high, middle of the plate, like Karen Check. Karen Check, when he's gotten himself into trouble or he's been beat up, it's been more command, like leaving those fastballs more in hittable zones as opposed to top of the zone where he was so good at top of the zone fastball, down in the zone curveball. The command is just not there for him right now. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's a good thing they have Trevor Steffen and Sam Hentges isn't far away. Taylor Santos has been good. They have options. I think they can. I mean, you said keep throwing him out there in the fire. I don't know. I think that's so. four home runs in twelve innings after he gave up two in thirty nine last year. I'm still gonna because as we talked about with Naylor, there are certain players that yes, there are questions about them and. It's like a bonus if you get great things from them. And then there are players that you're relying on. If if Jose Ramirez is in a funk, you're not going to run from him because he's a critical player to your success and you need him to get out of it. And I think the same is true for Karen Cech. I'm going to still keep pitching him. Maybe, uh, maybe I'll flip Stefan and Karen Cech as far as the depth chart goes, if there is such a thing mentally <laughs> in Tito's mental Rolodex of relievers. But I'm not going to like... Uh, Stick him into seven-run games now, and that's the only place I can pitch him. Yeah, it's fine. I mean, it's to me, it's more about situation anyway. Who are you facing and when? Mm. Unfortunately, you know, are you facing a top seven, prospect. eight, nine in the eighth, or are you facing two, three, four in the sixth? A top prospect for Cleveland won't be facing anybody in the near future. Real quick before we wrap things up. Espino, what's the latest on him? Are, are we are we revisiting your shoulders are scary take from earlier this year? Yeah, man. At least with an elbow, you've seen guys do it so many times and it's there's you know, and he's, we'll see you in a year. Thanks, thanks for coming. Good luck and uh, have fun out there. But shoulders, man, they, there's not, there's no guarantees there. And let's not get ahead of ourselves. You know, it's, I'm not a doctor. I didn't stay at a holiday and I don't know what, what's going to happen. But when, you feel something during a throwing program in January and they shut you down. And then you start to ramp back up a couple months later and you feel it again and they shut you down again. And this time it's not going to be let the symptoms subside and we'll slowly build back up. It's going to be let's go see the doctor who does this stuff. I mean, I think your mind goes to places that you don't want it to go to when talking about any player, let alone a pitching prospect who was not too far from the majors and throws 102 with a wipeout slider. So for as excited as they seem to be about Williams and Bybee and Allen, um, I don't know. I don't know that you're going to see Espino in that group for a little while. I thought we were going to get a Tim McCarferism. I thought we were, <laughs> we were so close. <laughs> or as good as... It makes it semi-easier to swallow with Espino when the trio, Allen has arrived, Bybee doesn't look too far off, Williams blowing fools away at double A. I guess that makes it easier to stomach. And you'll play the long game with Espino. You know, he's, he's younger than some of these other pitchers, so if it takes him a little bit longer to arrive, fine. You want to make sure that he's right physically because when he's on the mound, he's got that unicorn status. And so... Unlike guys that are the 24, 25 years old, and you're like, let's go. You got to get these guys promoted. Espino, I think you can take a little bit more time. I also, I know the the safety net here, the, the soft landing spot has always been, well, if he doesn't emerge or he doesn't have the durability to be a starter, it looks like he could be a fantastic closer. And great, if, if, the end result still is you get something that's elite all-star level, something out of him. Great. I just am, I'm more focused on 
making sure that he's right physically. And if that means it's going to take a couple of years before he arrives, if the end of that is you unlock the front of the rotation starter that we all know he's got the ability to be, so be it. Yeah. I I don't know. I mean, injuries are impossible to predict. Impossible to know how a player is going to bounce back, how their body's going to feel. And I don't know. So, so like you see reaction and certainly fans are going to be frustrated and say, Oh, you should have traded him," or you like Danny Salazar too. I mean, I, to be fair, like I feel like I've referenced Danny Salazar with this too, but um, you just, you don't know. And it's impossible to predict. And that's why every team is furiously trying to find little competitive advantages on the strength training and medical side of things. Because in baseball, it's it's a war of attrition. And, and you are trying to survive 162 games. And pitching is not a natural motion. And it makes it tough. And so I think it's it's difficult because... You almost just have to assume that every like electric stuff pitcher is going to run into some major injury <laughs> at some point, right? And it's well, all that's about why the they timing. say there's there's no such thing as a pitching prospect. That's 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 where the saying comes from because it's so volatile. But I will have some pushback on that. Well, you should have traded him, as if the other team that would be trading for him wouldn't know these other concerns. There's a reason why when they drafted Espino, these things were talked about. This was on the table then. So the team that you're trading him to, would everyone would have been cool with training Espino for 65% of his value? Because that's probably what would have happened if the other team knows what his in- injury history is and then they see Cleveland willing to trade him. They would say, why? Why? So now you're not getting 100% of his value? I'll, I'll, I'll take the chance that I'm going to get a front-of-the-rotation starter here, even if it means I have to be just a little bit uh, patient in the approach here, as opposed to selling him for far short of what you could have gotten in a trade if he's 100% healthy, which, by the way, you would never do because he's that good of a prospect. This is one of those cases where I'll take the risk. Sometimes there's a risk here as a gamble, and it doesn't pay off. I still think the odds are better when you keep a guy like this and you just let it play out. And then you feel good about your pitching development. You feel good about the way you handle injuries and your training staff and all of that. You put faith in them that they're going to get the most out of him. And two years from now, you're very thankful that you have this guy. So of those core four pitching prospects, I don't know who will wind up being the best, who will stick in the majors the longest. In terms of just stuff, it's almost like, okay, Allen is here. We've reached level one. At some point, I think we're going to advance to level two and get to see Bybee. Then level three, Gavin Williams, who's been throwing 100 miles an hour and look, his wind up and everything looks like Garrett Cole. I don't, but like, are we ever going to get to that, that toughest level? Mm. Like, are we going to get to face Bowser on that big rock platform with fire <laughs> all over the place? Hey, that's a Spino. <laughs> Went and saw the Mario movie with the family this weekend. How was it? Two thumbs up. It was good. Good handling of the source material. Number of references that my kids would never get because they didn't spend hours and hours playing Mario growing up like like we did. Uh, it's a it's a big recommend for me. Now, does the mar- the movie that's made like close to a billion dollars need me to sell it? Probably not. Weeks after its release, no. But I will do so, and uh, I'm happy to do it. It was. Uh, Worth, worthy of the time and the like $90 you have to spend to get popcorn and drinks and anything else. Speaking of movies really quick, the Terry Francona documentary aired on Sunday night. Um, I did sit down with MLB Network for about 45 minutes uh, a couple months ago. They ended up not using any of my footage, which I think Anthony Kastrofens was <laughs> the only Cleveland person in it anyway. Um, whatever, that happens. They have to leave a lot of stuff on the gutter room floor. I don't care. I'm glad Director's that I wasn't cut. in it for one reason. Um, I wore a new sweater that day and a new button-down shirt under the sweater. And I did not look in the mirror before I left the house 
and oh, no. I had my shirt buttoned down all weird. And I got home that day. I remember thinking when I looked in the mirror, I looked like an 1850s school teacher. So I'm glad that that <laughs> look did not make it to network television.